Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together as, as members of the one body, uh, sharers of the one faith, believers in the one God, the Father of all. Um, Lord, and we're grateful for um, this uh, uh, treatment of Kim. Um, we know that there still exists a possibility of cancer, um, but it seems as though it may have been caught early, so we're grateful for that. We pray for the wisdom of the doctors to prescribe the right kind of treatment. And Lord, of course, we pray for healing. Um, we, we would like uh, for this to be a, as uh, minimal um, a process for Kim as possible, but we thank you for their witness, for their testimony. Even as I was praying for them the other day, I found myself praying for people to be um, put in front of both Kim and Patty because uh, we know they are willing to share the gospel. Uh, and I thank you for stories I've already heard about that. Um, and so we pray for that process to continue. Uh, and, and I pray that for those of us gathered here this morning, Lord, that our hearts and, and minds and ears would be open to what you have for us. Uh, this is another somewhat challenging section of Scripture, and so I pray that we would find the application for each of us um, to help us become better ambassadors, better disciples of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is good to see so many of you back this week after the verbal thrashing you received last week. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't really all that bad. Um, but I can tell just by looking around that you're all really quite a bit more humble than you were last week. So I think you took some of that to heart. Um, you, you certainly seem more gentle and, and loving. I'm sure that will change with what I'm about to say. Um, but you know what struck me is I was go- kind of going back through last week and preparing for this week. Uh, uh, in the midst of all the details about the humility and gentleness and all those other things, there were a couple of uh, kind of unstated concepts that I would like to state uh, just by way of reminder to us all. Um, and the first one is that in order for us to be counted as one of the faithful, um, in order for us to be really, truly, genuine, faithful, sincere followers of Christ— it has to be a total immersion proposition. A life of true faith is intended to permeate every aspect of our life. Paul appealed to the brothers in Rome that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Living as in all of life. It's an all-in commitment to be a true follower of Christ. You know, you can't be a little bit pregnant, and you can't be a part-time Jesus follower. That's how it works. Um, some of you may, may know that several years ago, a man named Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers. Um, and in the book, based on some studies that have been done, uh, he quotes this idea that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to master a skill or a trait. Now, if we were to apply that to our call to unify in the church and our ability to be humble and patient and gentle and loving... Just those four different things we need to develop to have a proficient walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Four things at 10,000 hours each. I did the math for you. Assuming that we sleep for eight hours a day, it would take us seven years of consistent focus and practice to master those four things. Seven years if we do nothing else. That's no lunch hours, no potty breaks. No Netflix and chilling. It's a lifetime commitment for us to work towards unity and to have all of those traits. Now, fortunately for us, that 10,000-hour thing, that's not the process the Lord created. Very fortunately for us. We have been given gifts of grace as part of our salvation. 
we've been given strength to develop these traits directly from Christ through the Spirit. But as we all know, it's still a lifetime of learning and developing and applying the attributes of humility, gentleness, peace, and bearing with one another in love. It takes practice. And we all know it never gets easy because we're still dealing with people, and people are still, you know, people. Some are harder to love. Some are harder to be gentle with. But unity and gentleness and forbearance does get easier with the help of the Spirit. The second highlight, I think, that came to mind was as challenging and even as daunting as these teachings are, we're told that the Lord equips us to do what he asks us to do. But what we get is kind of like on-the-job training rather than software download. Right? We want humility now. But we get more of a learning, on-the-job training kind of process. So when he asks us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, he will equip us, equip us to do it. He's going to help us as we need help. But it still seems kind of overwhelming at times. And, and it seems at times like it's a lot for us to ask. I mean, we all know we're, we're, we're fallible, imperfect humans. It seems like he's asking a lot of us. But when you take a step back and you start to see this this process of sanctification, this process of becoming more Christ-like, and you try to look at it from a big picture, you start to see that he provides the motivation for us as well as the ability for us to walk in a manner worthy of a calling. Because really what's happening is Jesus is asking us to live for him because he died for us. It's pretty good motivation. So when you think about it in that big picture perspective, what he asks us to do on all these little steps steps doesn't really seem all that unreasonable. Not easy, but not unreasonable. He asks us, the recipients of grace, to, to represent him and his love to everyone else. And obviously he wants us to represent him in the best light possible. If you have met people who say they have rejected church, they rejected God, they don't believe in God, more often than not, they're rejecting someone who represented God. It's a problem they had with somebody else because we don't always do it well. And yet he chooses imperfect people to represent his perfect love. But I think that's kind of the point. When we commit to try to represent his love, when we try to share his perfect love, it starts by changing us. And in the process of changing us, we're not still perfect. We're still not perfect, but we are perfecter. And then people start to see a change in us. They start to see a change in us. They'll see and they'll hear hope in us. And they will be drawn to the love of the Father, which was put on display by the sacrifice of his Son, and they will see our developing character, which is fueled by the indwelling and the power of the Spirit. So Paul's how-to manual here, this last half of the book, the orthopraxy section, continues. Last week, Paul's focus was really on kind of how we're, how we're supposed to interact with each other in the, in the confines or in the body of the church. Throughout the rest of the book, he starts moving into, you know, meddling in all of the other areas of life, how we interact with each other, how we interact in our marriage with our kids, relationships in general. And he's going to give us instruction and encouragement for how every believer is to walk worthy. This section is especially true, how we're to walk worthy in the culture at large. How are we to live a Christian when we're out there the rest of the time? 
The full text for us today is uh, chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, but we're going to break it down into more bite-sized pieces um, because we would probably choke and gag and die if we looked at it in bigger pieces. So we're going to start with just the first couple of verses, 17 and 19. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul starts off this section by saying, I testify in the Lord. This is a a confirmation, a, a reaffirmation that what he is about to share with them, this is a message that's coming from the Lord through him to the church. So when I told you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, that, that was a message from the Lord, Paul reminds them. What I'm about to tell you, because it's not going to be fun or pleasant, what I'm about to tell you also comes from the Lord. Back in the start of this chapter, in verse 1, he said, Paul, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He's aware that what he's going to share is difficult. It's, it's hard to hear. It's challenging for us. So he takes the time here to remind us all of, you know, from whence this message cometh. This is the Lord speaking through Paul, so we need to pay attention. And then he, he sets up this sharp contrast. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Just 16 verses back, he says, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So he starts this chapter by saying, walk this way. And now in the second half, he says, and don't walk this way. Do these things. Don't do these things. And when he uses the word Gentiles, this is really just a, a general reference to everyone who's not a Christ follower. So don't walk like the unbelievers walk. Don't, don't live like the culture at large. Don't live like everyone else. Don't follow the unbelieving crowd. Don't live like they do, he says, in the futility of their minds. Now, I think it's really important for us to notice that living a life worthy of our calling starts in the mind. A worthy life, a life of faith, starts with what we believe. We all know this to be true. We just like to forget it sometimes. What we believe, what we say we believe, what, what we truly believe drives our behaviors and fuels our emotions. Our beliefs, our thoughts are the engine of our actions. Our beliefs compel us to act. And there are so many verses that support this. In Romans 12, we read about renewing of our mind. In 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. Romans 8, set the mind on the spirit. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Philippians 4, whatever is noble, pure, lovely, think on these things. It starts in the mind. In spiritual terms, what Paul's laying out is right thinking is the key to right living. Which is why he started this book, this first half of the letter, with the orthodoxy section. He provided the foundation for us upon which we can develop and build right thinking, so that now right thinking enables and promotes right living. So it follows then that without having a scriptural, God-honoring, spirit-led thought process, our thinking is futile. Now, futility is an interesting word here. It literally means a useless act or gesture. 
so the Gentiles, Paul is saying, that the, the non-believing culture, their thinking is useless to them. We might say in common language, they're just not thinking clearly. At which point we probably think, but wait a minute, I know a lot of non-believers. I, I know a lot of unbelieving people who are actually quite bright. I mean, brilliant even. I think I know a couple who are smarter than I am. So how can their thinking be useless? I don't think that futile word means what you think it means. But remember Paul's goals here. He's teaching the church. He's encouraging the church towards Christ-likeness, towards holiness, towards blamelessness. If our thinking, if our beliefs, no matter how brilliant we may be in some areas, if our thinking does not move us in the direction of holiness and blamelessness, if our thinking does not take us closer to God, then it is ultimately futile. If it does not lead us to honor God, the primary reason for which we were created, then our brilliant thinking is useless, it is futile, it leads us in the wrong direction. That's not just me saying it. Paul is saying it here. And it's not even Paul saying it. Paul is saying, I got this from the Lord. And he says these feudal thinkers are, are darkened in their understanding and they're alienated from the life of God. Which is the opposite of our goal as members of the body. We are called to live the life of God, to be Jesus followers, to live the life that God has preordained for us. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world to live rightly, to live according to the truth of God's word. It's part of why we're called. But the Gentiles referred to here have rejected God, and the consequence is their thinking is futile. They can be brilliant on all kinds of issues and topics. We know lots of really smart people. But they've missed out on the biggest issue of all, where they're going to spend eternity. And in that sense, they will ultimately be found unworthy, alienated from God. Now, it's always amazed me that the, the, the great irony here is that, you know, with the advent of the education explosion with the increase in scientific discovery that started to take place in the late 1700s and moved through the 1800s and into the 1900s, man began to think that he no longer needed a God to explain what had previously been hard to explain or unexplainable. Man was brilliant enough to figure out the world without relying on a creator. And we, we, we refer to this period as Enlightenment. Just consider the, the hubris of that statement. The irony of it. As soon as man uttered the phrase, we are so smart, we don't need God, their smart thinking became futile. It was useless to them. And those beliefs, as they permeated the culture, led to a great falling away from God. We're still riding the coattails of that thinking. Ephesians 4 and Romans 1 both make it clear that rejecting God leads to futile thinking, which leads to darkened understanding and alienation from God. And that causes us to continue focusing on thinking on the wrong things. 
it's really kind of a, a, a sad, vicious cycle that we get in. It's kind of like that game you used to play as kids, you know, you're warmer, you're warmer. No, you're colder. You're warmer. I mean, the, the, the more the world thinks it's closing in on enlightenment, the closer it gets to living life without a need or a reason or excuse for God, and the farther they are from the truth. They think they're getting warmer. They think they're getting closer to truth, but they're getting colder. They're moving farther and farther away from the truth of God, from the purpose for which they were created. For those who reject God, their ignorance about God and the things of God, that's led to another consequence, which is hard-heartedness. Paul kind of lays this out here like it's a kind of a double whammy. The feudal thinking has led them away from the things of God so far away that they become thick-skinned. That's the word callous here. just literally means thick-skinned. They become thick-skinned to God. They become thick-skinned towards God's love for them to the point they no longer consider, care what God says or thinks. They don't care about his morals. They don't care about God's ethics. They don't care about God's guidelines for living a good and healthy life. It's just not a consideration. And we're told that that callousness towards God allows them to give themselves up to. Paul lists really three things here. Sensuality, greed, and impurity. These, it seems, are the necessary results of a life lived in rejecting or being alienated from God. I mean, it feels kind of harsh to say it out loud. And yet, even as we read this, we know it's true because we're seeing this play out in the culture around us every second of every day. In fact, most of us have been on this road at some point in our life. We've been heading in this direction living in pursuit of these things. We've been enslaved by these things from which God has graciously saved us. We know where this road ends, and we see it play out around us. It is clear that people are increasingly giving themselves to sensuality. And the word just means having to do with the senses, our, our five senses. Other words that could be used here are licentiousness or lewdness or debauchery. Whatever it is that makes us feel good. Sex, drug, alcohol abuse. Sensuality in Scripture is often listed with things like sexual perversion and promiscuity. One definition I ran across says sensuality is devotion to gratifying bodily appetites. So when we choose not to devote ourselves to God and the things of God, things which are intended to make our life better, to help us function the way we were designed to function, then our futile minds, our hard-heartedness, cause us to be devoted to other things, selfish things, like gratifying our bodily appetites and desires. We become devoted to those things. And we know that, that humans are, are idol-making factories because we were designed to worship. We're going to worship something. When we reject God, we turn to other things to worship. We erect other idols in his place. We become intent on worshiping things like drugs and legalizing drugs, which is increasingly common in our country. We worship things like sexual identity and preference, gender confusion, self-determination. We accept it. We celebrate it. We encourage it in other people. Those are the things we become devoted to. 
So it's not surprising that one very recent study, I mean, like two or three weeks ago, a study came out that says that more than half of Gen Z, people born between 1988 and 2010, more than half of Gen Z claims to be LGBTQ. Now, historically, for frame of reference, that number has always been around 3%, and that's kind of the high end. So more than half of our younger kids are claiming to be LGBTQ. There's this huge spike because we've created a culture that celebrates sexual identity above everything else. Well, we don't celebrate heterosexuality so much. But every other variation is celebrated and encouraged. And which teenager doesn't want to fit in, doesn't want to be celebrated, doesn't want to be lauded for something, be part of something, to be socially accepted? This is surely an indication that our culture has become futile in our thinking. We've become hard-hearted towards the things of God. We're, we're turning the very building blocks of society on their heads in defiance of God's created order, and we're celebrating the idolatry of self. Even these minor components of self. We worship us. Is it any wonder that we have increasing use of antidepressants in this country? People are looking for something to fill their lives. We have an increasing number of suicides because people are seeing the futility in doing what they're doing, living the way they're living. What we're experiencing in the sensuality area especially is a distortion of God's plan for sex. He created two people, a man and a woman, a male and a female. He created this remarkable process of sexual union to be shared in the context of marriage between one man and one woman which then amazingly results in more males and more females. And any sexual activity outside of that context should rightly be considered sensuality. And any gendering beyond male and female goes against God's clear plan of creation. But this is where we are. We celebrate and promote the lie rather than the truth. And I want you to notice here that Paul feels the need to remind us, he's being led to remind us, followers of Christ, that we're not to live like that. Because he knows us. He knows the church. He knows that Christians are not immune from the allure of sensuality. Right now, we have churches and, and denominations in the country that are buying into the, into the lie. They're going along with it. They're celebrating this distortion of truth with phrases like welcoming and affirming. There are an increasing number of books by gay Christians pointing out that Scripture does not really mean what it says or what we think it means. It's not unlike the serpent saying, did God really mean? We are not immune. Something like 40% of Christians have viewed porn in the last year, which can lead to marital difficulties, to increased levels of guilt and shame, occasional even to addictive behavior. So Paul says... Don't be like the rest of the culture. Don't walk this way. You're called to be set apart. Do not let your thinking become futile. When we start to live like the Gentiles, thinking that we can live however we want, make whatever choices we want, do whatever we want to do, 
even sin, so long as we keep it under control, keep it quiet, we think we're free from consequence. But that's part of the big lie. Even though the sins of sensuality, when we talk about all the, the, the sexual things and the gender things that are happening in our culture, maybe that's not our particular wheelhouse of sin. Those don't really apply to us. Even though we may not be able to understand or, or uh, I guess understand is the right word, understand much of the thinking or the feeling that surrounds all of that stuff, we all know from our own personal and painful experience that sin always has consequences. And in that light, when we see it from that perspective, we're not substantially different from those who are devoted to sensuality. That may not be our sin, but we have our own sins, and it leads to the same consequences. We are just or have been devoted to other things like money and power and status. So it's interesting, I think, that greed makes this list also. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, really. The central force behind greed is, is selfishness. It's, it's an insatiable appetite for more. Greed is a continual lust for more. More often than not, we tend to think of it in terms of material things. You know, we want more stuff. We need new stuff. We like shiny stuff. We got so much stuff, we rent extra buildings to store our stuff. Advertisers bank on the fact that we want more stuff. But it doesn't have to be just material things. Greed can also uh, manifest in, in lust for more power in the workplace. It can be lust for more status in the community. It can be lust for more likes on social media. And eventually, when we start becoming controlled by this unquenchable lust for more or whatever it is we're talking about, then we start to find that we're, we're going to do whatever it takes to get more stuff. We become immoral. We start to become unscrupulous. We start taking advantage of other people to get what we want because we are the thing we are most devoted to. Whatever is best for us. And this kind of greed in general leads to what Paul references to as greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And every kind of impurity here, this is really just kind of a catch-all phrase Paul uses. It's a term for general uncleanness, riotous. I like that word, riotous or unrestrained immorality. Which could include sensuality and greed, but it also pretty much includes every other sin that we can imagine. And really the meaning here is not just the act of sin, the act of being impure, but it's being purposeful, it's being intentional about it, it's enjoying it. Again, I think we can point back to much of the culture around us at the moment. It seems like we're looking for new ways to be immoral. And underlying Paul's argument here is the fact that sin is pleasurable. And it seems, anyway, we probably wouldn't do it if it was painful. It's pleasurable. It seems like a good time. Sin seems like a good time. It seems like it meets a need for us. It seems like it satisfies a desire. But there are always strings attached. It's like fool's gold. It sets a trap for us. It sets a snare. 
And immorality is not just harmless fun. Greed is not just a means to an end to help us get what we want. Sensuality is not just feeling good. There are consequences for all of this. It goes back to creation. It goes back to our design. We were created with a specific purpose. We were created with an intended way of functioning. We work best. We live best when we live according to our purpose. You've probably seen these product disclaimers on things all the time. It'll say something like, for best results, use as intended. I don't know why, but I thought of this stupid analogy. When, when we use a tennis racket as a tennis racket, we may still be horrible at tennis, but the racket does what it was designed to do. It works as intended. When we use a teacup as a teacup, it works as intended. It does what it was designed to do. When we try to use a tennis racket as a teacup, disaster ensues. And a clear thinking, a reasonable person might say, well, I'd have to be an idiot to try to use a tennis racket for this unintended purpose. I'd have to be an idiot to use a tennis racket to try to enjoy a spot of tea. I probably ought to consider design and form and function as a part of all this mediating and discussing. But a feudal thinker might say, hey, for some reason I have second-degree burns on my, on my legs and my trousers are ruined. I'm going to have to sue the racket manufacturer <laughs> over its poorly designed hot water retention system. I should be able to make it do whatever I want it to do. So when God created man in his own image, He made himself known to us. He's imprinted on our souls. We all have knowledge of God from within, and he tells us we have knowledge of God from without, from the creation itself. We were created and stamped with a disclaimer, and the disclaimer says, for best results, use as intended, see directions. And the directions say, among other things, be holy, for I am holy. It says, in all your ways... Acknowledge the Lord, and he will direct your paths. I said, God created man in his image, male and female. It says, the Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Because the Lord made us, he knows better than anyone that life with him, living for him, following his directions for us, is absolutely the best thing for us. He also knows that when we reject his plans, when we choose to follow our own truth, those other pursuits, sensuality, greed, and impurity, will slowly eat us up. They will corrode our souls. They will darken our understanding. They will drive us further away from the God who loves us, who made us, who wants us to enjoy eternity with him. Sin always drives us away from God. Which is why Paul reminds us we're supposed to be living sacrifices. Holy, blameless. Even a little sin is corrupting and has consequences. And if you think about it, the Bible does not call us to sin less. We're called to not sin. Because even a little sin is damaging. Of course, the Lord knows better than anybody because he made us. 
going to be a process for us. It's, it's a goal that we work towards. And it gives us lots of assistance along the way. But we have to make an effort. In, in Leviticus 10, the priests were instructed that it was their job to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, or the impure. I think that kind of helps give us a little context about our walk. Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Don't be holy or impure. We need to be able to tell the difference. Where is that line? We need, we need to know what the standard for living is so we can easily determine what it isn't. Because it can be kind of confusing and, and overwhelming at times. It can seem impossible. Part of the struggle we're having with, with churches and denominations embracing so many other things is because we're allowing the culture to redefine words for us. Well, we want to talk about God's love, but what does that mean? When we let them define it, we end up meaning something entirely different than what the manual says. And we may still sin. Well, we will still sin. But as a believer, as as a recipient of salvation, we know we can go before the throne. We know that we can kneel before the cross. We confess our sins. We can we can know that God is faithful. He's just. He'll forgive our sins. He'll give us the Holy Spirit, which is always present, to help us discern the pure from the impure. Paul goes on. But that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and that you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So basically, Paul's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do because now you know better. Now you know. But you'll notice this text, this section started with, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, which means you used to be just like them. You used to have all those, you used to have all those same problems, those same issues that they're struggling with right now. But now, church, he writes, now you've learned the truth. You've learned Christ. You've learned about Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but it is kind of fascinating that the, Paul's use of Jesus here, just by itself, it's the only time in the whole book that he uses Jesus as a standalone name. Every other time in this letter, Paul uses Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus. And it's intentional here. Throughout the whole rest of the book, Paul is emphasizing for us the, the sovereignty, the power above all other powers, the, the enthronement of Christ. It's Christ the Messiah, Christ the Savior, Christ the Conqueror. But here, in the context of how we are to live a manner, live a life worthy of our calling, how to live a life that's different from the Gentiles, Paul points to Jesus. He said, here's your example. The truth is to be found in Jesus. Jesus, the incarnated God. Jesus, God with us, came to live as a man. He reminds us that God showed us through the life of Jesus how to live a righteous and God-honoring and Christian life. Jesus modeled what it is he's calling us to do. Jesus taught us. He showed us that we can resist temptation because Jesus was tempted as we are tempted. And he didn't yield. In fact, Jesus was tempted by the king of tempters. And he stood firm. He was grounded in truth. 
So we see that we too can put off the old self, which in our case was how we used to live. Those old selves were corrupted by deceitful desires. We had been corrupted by futile thinking. We were experiencing hard-heartedness until we learned Christ, until we received Christ. And now we can live worthy. We're called to live worthy. But the old self's not going to go without a fight. We're still going to have a battle on our hands from time to time. Which is why Paul says, again, we need to be renewed by the spirit of our minds. He goes back to what you believe. Starts in our minds, our thoughts, our beliefs. We have to throw out the old self and put on the new self. And that begins with knowing what is true and what is a lie. And being able to distinguish between the truth of God's word and the lies that come from the culture. So we're called to read God's word. We don't just check it off our to-do list this morning, which we all do at times. But we read it, and we, we, we pray over it, and we pray for wisdom to know how to understand it. We pray for even more wisdom to know how to apply it. We gather together with God's people to learn more from each other, to encourage one another. And we continue to seek righteousness and holiness. But going back to last week's text, but we do those things with humility and with gentleness, abounding in love. We should never forget that as troubled as, as we may be by aspects of our popular culture at the moment, we must never forget that they too are created in God's image. They too are part of the whole world that God so loves. They, too, are the people that Jesus died for. And so we should not be surprised when an unbeliever sins. We should not be surprised when an unbelieving culture moves in an ungodly direction. But we're still called to reach them. We're still called to love them. We're called to show them an alternative way to live. If you want to talk about an alternative lifestyle, we're called to point them towards hope and not to reject them because they are them and we are us. But we have to make sure that there's a difference in us for them to notice. We need to show them an entirely different altogether different alternative lifestyle that we are trying to live a life worthy of our calling, that we are trying to follow after God in true righteousness and holiness. We have to get our own spiritual house in order so we can be effective out there. It's an ongoing process. And sometimes it's easier for us to think we're doing better than we are when we look at everybody else and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. It's not the standard. In 1656, a man named John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. It is not light reading. It is not fun reading, but it is good reading. Perhaps the most famous phrase in this book and kind of the central teaching is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I mean, it's really kind of simple. If, if, if Christians truly believe 
that the wages of sin is death, that sin separates us from God, then even a little sin should drive us to confession. Even a little sin should prompt us to want to close any gap that exists between us and Jesus. So as we prepare for communion, remembering and honoring the fact that Jesus died for our sins so that we can confess and we can be forgiven. In a minute, we'll have the worship team come up. We'll have servers come up. I want to put up a little quote from this book on the screen. We'll just kind of serve as a, maybe a devotion or a reminder that our sin needs to be dealt with. We need to be good here before we can do good out there. The blood of Jesus will cover our sin, but we need to confess our sin on a regular basis. We need to admit our sin against God. We need to seek forgiveness, and we need to receive help from the Spirit. So as we go through this, I don't know where everybody is this morning. We're going to allow for a period of quiet reflection and confession this morning. We're going to pass out the bread and cup. The music's going to play. But you can take communion when you are ready to take communion. However much time you need for confession, however much time you need for reflection, that's going to be up to you this morning. So don't wait for us to all take it together. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start communion. John Owen wrote, Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. I'm going to read that again. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing to consider that when Paul wrote these words, that they were dealing with, well, the exact same issues we're dealing with today. Humanity has gone largely unchanged. We continue to look for alternatives. We continue to look for other things we can worship because we don't want to be, I don't know, committed. We don't want to obey we don't want to live according to our design and function, so we, we rebel against the Creator. And Lord, we're, we're living in a, in a culture that seems to be really, really good at that at the moment. But those of us who are called according to your name, those of us who have been chosen, who were, who were predestined to be followers of Christ, Lord, we are not immune from the the pulls, the temptations in our culture also. And so, Lord, we pray first for the, the mini-revival of our own soul, that we look for our areas of weakness. We look for areas where we have allowed temptation to sneak in. Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit convicts us of those things this morning, we, we, that we pray for forgiveness, that we pray for uh, strength and power to get through those temptations next time. We pray that through that process, we become better equipped to deal with those around us who are living an entirely different lifestyle. Lord, we pray for power and strength to live humbly, to live with gentleness, 
to live with patience, to live with love. Lord, I pray that we hold fast to the truth of your word, that, and we find there it is possible to love the sinner and hate the sin. Lord, help us get that balance right. It is possible to speak truth, but to speak it in love. Lord, I pray we get that balance right. But may it start with us. Lord, we pray as we take this time here for quiet confession, for prayer, for forgiveness, that, Lord, we once again renew our commitment to try to be more Christ-like this next week. We try to live up to the calling of holiness and and blamelessness and God-honoring. We thank you for your great patience and gentleness and love for us in the process.